I'm going to turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. We come to chapter 5 now. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 1 through 8 this morning. This is the Lord's word as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth. So we read now the inspired and therefore the infallible word of God, even as we have been singing it and reading it already. We now call our attention to God's word for the sermon today. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you were puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, I have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. And may he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing this day. Well, thus far in this letter, Paul has been dealing mainly with the problem of certain unnecessary, petty divisions in the church at Corinth. And in today's passage, he turns to another problem, the lack of the practice of biblical church discipline, though there certainly is a relationship between even this problem and that problem of division, uh, because both of them are related to the problem of pride as Paul will say in this passage. He points out the necessity in this passage of church discipline by citing this particularly egregious and public sin that's going on in the congregation there that is going undealt with in their midst. In this passage, we see that church discipline is necessary for several interrelated reasons. Number one, to gain the wayward brother or sister, Number two, to purge out the leaven of sin. And number three, to display the church as purified by Christ, which spiritually speaking it really is. So Paul names the problem in verse 1. And hopefully I can read it. I was getting tongue-tied as I was reading the scripture a few minutes ago. and So I pray I'll not continue to be tongue-tied. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. So what we see here is a man in the congregation at Corinth 
was living in a carnal relationship with his stepmother. Now, whether his father had passed on or or what uh, is not said here. He has his father's wife, Paul says. You notice Paul does say it's his father's wife. He doesn't say his own mother here. So that's that would be even worse, arguably. But uh, that's how we presume or assume it is a stepmother we're talking about here. Leviticus 18 verse 8 commands, The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. The Lord counts this sin as little or no different from such a relationship between an actual biological mother and son. Because uncovering the nakedness of your father's wife is uncovering your father's nakedness. So it is a family issue here. And what's more, this is so scandalous that it's something Paul says is not even named among the Gentiles. You might recall from our introduction to this sermon series that Corinth was a city noted for its widespread sexual depravity. Especially prostitution was a huge problem there. That was related to the religious worship of Aphrodite who had a temple there. And yet even the heathens of that city, people lost in darkness of false religion and depraved culture, even they, by and large, recoiled in disgust at this kind of sin. This is going too far even for them. The Greeks and the Romans considered this kind of thing a wicked perversion. That such things were practiced among the royal families of Egypt was considered a terrible scandal and a reason to look askance at the Egyptian culture. And it was even more shameful when people of the Greco-Roman culture began to imitate that wicked behavior of particularly marrying within their own close family. The Greek dynasty of the Ptolemies who ruled Egypt from just after the time of Alexander the Great and up to the time that the Romans took over that land had taken up that practice. The famed Cleopatra, I believe it was Cleopatra the Ninth, uh, is the one that you all think of when we say Cleopatra, Queen of the Nile. Right? She was actually married to her own brother before she took up with Caesar and then Mark Antony after that. The Herods of Judea, of of Syria, Palestina, took up the practice of marrying within their own family. You know, when, when Herod Antipas is condemned by John the Baptist for having his brother's wife, not only was she first married to his brother Philip, she also happened to be their niece. The Roman Emperor Caligula married his own sister, and this was a public scandal in Rome. It was one of the reasons people thought Caligula had gone mad, along with the fact that he also made his horse a senator and some other things that he did that were rather outrageous. And historians debate as to whether he was doing these outrageous things because he was actually insane or because he was trying to drive the people around him insane, so to speak, <clears throat> trying to get under the skin of his political opponents. But very few grieved when he was assassinated, the Emperor Claudius, who succeeded him, married his own niece, uh, who was known to have carried on an affair with her own son, who became the Emperor Nero. These are reasons that people at the time wrote about this to condemn 
the practices. They, even the pagans considered these things scandalous. So what all these practices had in common was that the average person in the Roman Empire, pagan, Jew, Christian alike, considered them to be disgusting and shameful. And here, a member of the church is engaging in a similar practice. How shameful is that, Paul says. This man is bringing shame on Christ's people, even in the eyes of the heathens around them. And what makes it worse is that the church was doing absolutely nothing about it. If they cared about this man, or if they cared about the reputation of Christ, they would do something about it. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. It's one thing, Paul says, if society is mistreating Christians because they are serving Christ. Rather, I said Paul there, but Peter. Peter says there, it's one thing if, if you're being mistreated because you're trying to serve Christ and the world hates Christ and therefore you, the world will mistreat you. But don't assume just because you're being mistreated that it's because you're a Christian. Make sure that that's the reason. If you're an evildoer and you suffer for that, you can't then say, oh, look at the world persecuting me for being a Christian. No, the world's persecuting you for being an evildoer, Peter says. It's quite another thing if we bring negative consequences on ourselves by our own wicked practices. Now, hand in hand with this problem of the immoral relationship going on here is the arrogance of the congregation as they're doing nothing about it. Paul identifies arrogance being puffed up as the reason behind their failure to deal with this sin in their midst. They downplayed it rather than mourning over it, he said. Verse 2, and you are puffed up and have not mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. Rather than grieving over this terrible sin and this disreputable situation, solemnly calling the sinning brother to account, they've either individually said, well, I'm above it and I won't worry about it, the God take care of that miserable, wicked man? Or, or they've collectively simply ignored the sin out of hubris. Well, we're still God's people. We're fine. Libertinism or antinomianism is prevailing here. By that we mean the libertine is the one who thinks that we're free to do all things in Christ. And so, do whatever you feel like doing. The antinomian particularly says that, uh, which antinomianism literally means against the law-ism, Uh, It says that we're not bound by God's moral law. In fact, we should sin all the more to prove that we trust in God's grace. You know, we all know that, rightly, that we're saved by God's grace working through faith alone and not by works. And so why don't we show it and just sin all the more that grace may abound? Well, Paul says in Romans, God forbid that we do that. We want to show that we trust God's grace, so let's just sin and say, see, We trust God's grace, not our own works. Well, no, that's not what somebody who's actually in God's grace wants to do. Whatever excuses they may have made up, the attitude of arrogance was really behind their refusal to discipline this man. That's what Paul says. Now, there are two possible ways of understanding 
the end of verse 2 when Paul writes that this man's, uh, of this man being uh, taken away from among you. As we see from the context, Paul is thinking in terms of excommunication, so it could be that he's talking about the, be- the man being cast out from the privileges of church membership. The Corinthians should have mourned this sin and, if the man didn't repent, cast him out of their, their fellowship for his continued unrepentance. But also Paul is likely saying that they should have mourned the fact that this man's sin means he might need to be taken from their midst. But rather than mourning the sin, they pridefully ignored it. Quite often in modern circles, people will say that it's because of their humility that they're not calling out the sin that's in their midst. Because I too am a sinner. How dare I point out this other sin? But the Bible here says exactly the opposite. We do it because of our pride. To their great shame, the people who were present had not dealt with this matter when Paul could easily judge from a distance what needed to be done. Verse 3, For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. Now I should pause here and deal with a misinterpretation to which people with wild imaginations are prone when they read this passage. Paul is not saying that he would leave his body, as the New Agers say would happen here. Uh, I've actually heard New Agers cite this as evidence that the Bible supports the notion of of astral projection. Uh, That Paul is not saying that he leaves his body and goes and visits the Corinthian church. I actually had uh, one time in early in my ministry a lady who was uh, known to be rather mentally disturbed call me up and tell me about how much she appreciated the worship services. Well, she'd never been to our church, but she said she'd left her body and come to church with us. Of course, when I asked her what I preached about, she couldn't tell me. Um, <clears throat> she really wasn't there. And I tried to explain to her that's not what that scripture means. Well, if that were the case, if that's what Paul meant here, he would have begun the verse by saying, I have observed, not I've heard about it. Right? It's actually reported to me. And he wouldn't have said, as if I were actually there, in the verse there. But he's simply saying that though he is physically distant, he is spiritually tied to Christ's people everywhere. This is true of all of Christ's people. And though, therefore his authority as an apostle is effective whether he's there in their midst or somewhere else. So even when he's far from them, he still has authority as an apostle of Christ to tell them, here's what you need to do. So he is determined to judge the case from a distance because the local church and its elders have failed to do so when it's right in their midst. And notice that he expects repentance on the part, not just of this particular man, but of the whole church. Not just the wayward brother, but all of them need to repent of this course of pride and do what they were supposed to do in the first place. They are to gather and carry out this sentence of judgment that the apostle has now pronounced. Verses 4 and 5, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that by his spirit, rather, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So they are to gather together under Paul's apostolic authority in the name and by the authority of Jesus Christ that Christ has given to his church and they are to pronounce this judgment. Paul's talking about the process of discipline that Jesus sets forth in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, where he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. That's an Old Testament principle. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Paul is saying here that this is a public sin that has been ongoing for some time, so the early steps in that process are already past. There clearly are some who are scandalized by this. They've reported it to Paul. Even their heathen neighbors are scandalized by it. There's no question that this man should be aware that it's a sin and has repeatedly refused to repent. And so Paul is saying those earlier steps in calling this brother to account are long past. It's time to treat him the way the old covenant Jew would treat a heathen or a tax collector outside of the covenant people of God, ceremonially unclean, not able to have fellowship with you until they repent. That's what Paul means when he says this man should be delivered over to Satan. He's to be cast out of the fellowship of the church. He has no privileges of membership. He cannot take communion and so on. As Paul will talk more about that in the coming verses. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, he will actually call Satan the god of this age. His influence on the world among fallen mankind is great. He is the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 2, the spirit now at work among the sons of disobedience. Jesus says, excuse me, those who do not worship him, he calls them children of the devil. In John 8, 44, in Matthew 3, 7, and 12, 34, John the Baptist and then Jesus respectively call those who are opposing Christ a brood of vipers, sons of the serpent. So turning someone over to Satan means essentially treating them as if they're not saved. Treat that person as if he never was actually a Christian. He should be loved as a neighbor. We're called to love our neighbor. We don't treat them as despicable. right? We treat them as a neighbor. But he should be evangelized as an unbeliever. But until he repents, he's not to receive any of the benefits of church membership. He's outside the family. We're to treat each other like family, but he's outside of that. He doesn't get to come to the Lord's table. That's a major major thing. As we'll see later in the chapter, that especially means that the Lord's table is to be guarded against those who are egregiously and unrepentantly sinning. But you notice that in Matthew 18, when Jesus sets forth this process, the point of the process 
is not to get rid of this guy who's a troublemaker. The point is to gain your brother. And that's the first reason that Paul has in mind and he lists this as, a, as why the church discipline is necessary. Number one, church discipline is necessary to gain the wayward brother or sister. In verse 5, he says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. His salvation is what Paul has in mind here. Not getting rid of him, but his salvation. And what does he mean when he speaks there of his flesh being destroyed and his spirit saved. Does he mean that turning someone over to Satan meant that he'll be killed? And then somehow that means he will be spiritually saved? Well, I won't be saved by my death. You won't be saved by your death. There's no means of salvation but Christ. Not some process of judgment and certainly not a person's own death or anything else. Rather, we see that in Paul's epistles he generally uses the term flesh for the sin nature. Remember how in chapter 3 he said the Corinthian Christians were being fleshly or carnal? They were acting according to their fallen old sin nature, not as the new creations that they actually were in Christ. They were acting like natural people rather than like spiritual people, he said. So Paul isn't talking about the destruction of this man's physical body when he says the destruction of the flesh. He's talking about the destruction of the sin nature, the destruction of his sinfulness. So when traditionally in Christian theology we talk about the mortification of sin or the mortification of flesh, that word mortification means the putting to death. And we're talking about putting to death the old sinful self. Not talking about the literal destruction of our bodies. The main goal of church discipline, even the most extreme level of church discipline, which is excommunication, you're out of the fellowship. That's literally what excommunication means. You're out of communion, not just in terms of the Lord's table, but out of fellowship with the church. The point of it is to gain back the sinning Christian. That's the first aim. Sometimes when a brother or sister is more consistently acting like an unbeliever than like a believer, we have to treat them like they're an unbeliever. It may take being cast out of the fellowship of God's people for a person to see just how egregious this is, what a big problem this is. Losing those privileges of being in the covenant body, that's what it takes sometimes to awaken an erring brother or sister to the seriousness of his or her sin and his or her need to repent. The goal is that he would repent, be restored to the fellowship, and thus have assurance of his salvation in Christ because he is being made more righteous. Because even that sin didn't keep him from repentance and from being saved. Church discipline is necessary to gain back the sinning brother or sister. Number two, church discipline is necessary to purge out the leaven of sin. Verse 6 and 7. Your glorying, your boasting, is not good, Paul says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened, 
For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Of course, again, the first aim of church discipline is not to get rid of the sinner, but it's to call them back. But even if they don't come back, at the very least we see that this sin was purged from among God's people. The ongoing unrepentant sin not only damages the one committing it, it damages the whole church. It harms the church's reputation in the wider community. It teaches other Christians that their sins aren't that big a deal. Just think of it. If, if the church lets a man get away with this, he's shacked up with his stepmom, what else should they let us get away with? If that's not a big deal, what other things aren't that big a deal? It teaches other Christians that their sins aren't really that big a deal. and encourages rampant sinfulness among God's people. The leaven in a lump of dough doesn't just stay in one place. Right? It, it permeates the whole lump of dough. That's how you get a risen loaf of bread. And so if sin is like leaven, it ends up affecting and harming everything it touches. And it tends to permeate everything around it. The main goal, of course, is to gain your brother back when you're engaging in this church discipline. If he's gained, the leaven has been purged in the best way possible. But even if he won't repent, excommunication gets that evil influence out of the church. Sometimes, sadly, that's the case. The erring brother is disciplined and never returns. We would rather that not be the way it is. But sometimes, that's what happens. Think of the Apostle John himself famously had two students who became very well known in the church, in the broader church after him. One was Polycarp, who was known to be a very godly man, and in his very old age uh, went to be burned at the stake because he refused to forsake the gospel. The other, another famous student of his, he had a few others, but another famous student of the Apostle John was a man named Marcion who ended up teaching a completely false gospel and wanting to throw out the Old Testament and huge parts of the New Testament. Polycarp, when he saw him on the street of Rome, passed by him and Marcion said, Don't you remember me, your fellow student? And he said, Oh, I remember the son of Satan when I see him. Would have been better if he had repented and come back to the Lord's true gospel. But at least he was out of the church. At least he was recognized as someone who was a teacher not to be followed. Under the Old Covenant, when Israel prepared for the Passover, they would sweep out their houses so as to get rid of all of the yeast, lest some of it be there and accidentally leaven their bread during the time of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now Paul says, Christ is our Passover, who's been sacrificed for us. So we're, in a sense, spiritually speaking, always under the Passover. Lord willing, I'll dig more deeply into that uh, next time. But for now, note, since we have a permanent Passover in Christ, who has been sacrificed that God's wrath at our sins might pass over us, we should get rid of all of the leaven in our lives as well. 
And that leaven that Paul's talking about is the leaven of sin. Not the yeast that causes our bread to rise, but the leaven of malice and wickedness, as he calls it in verse 8. A particular problem in Corinth was, as verse 2 indicates, the sin of pride. That was infecting the whole church. And that man's undealt with sin, this particular man's undealt with sin, was just making the problem worse. It had to be dealt with to purge out the leaven of sin. Church discipline is necessary to purge out the leaven of sin. Lastly, number three, church discipline is necessary to display the church as purified by Christ. In verse 7, Paul writes, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. You are, already are, in a spiritual sense, unleavened in Christ. The spiritual reality is that we are counted as blameless in Christ Jesus. He has paid the penalty for our sins. He has credited his righteousness to your account. Because Christ is our Passover, spiritually speaking, we truly are unleavened when we're talking about the leaven of sin. So in verse 8, Paul exhorts us to show that fact to the world, to show it forth. Spiritually speaking, you are no longer leavened with sin, so act like it, he says. Verse 8, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Living with sincerity, with integrity in Christ. Living out that truth of his revealed word. Church discipline is necessary to display the spiritual reality that Christ's people are purified in Christ. We need to show ourselves as a purified people because we really are, spiritually speaking, a purified people. So we see the necessity of church discipline in these verses. It's necessary to gain a wayward brother or sister. It's necessary to purge out the old leaven of sin. It's necessary to display the church as purified by Christ. Do not avoid church discipline, but embrace it and rejoice in it as a gift from our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you deal with our sins and sinfulness. You correct us. You use church discipline to gain back the wayward, to purify the church, to show it as pure in your eyes. And you have paid for our sins in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would help us to do these things and to serve you ever in godliness more and more. As we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.